0: Make yourselves comfortable. Next week, we'll look a little bit into how important it is for a Christian to read with the Bible on one side and the newspaper on the other, as Carl Barth used to say, how, how valuable it is to have a high understanding of what's going on around us. That's what Hillary was leading us in just then. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. But if you have a Bible or device you're using, flip over to Esther 3. Esther 3. We are working our way through the book of Esther in a series that really looks at how God can seemingly be nowhere and then actually everywhere at the same time. And this is a fascinating passage, the one that we get to look at today. Esther 3, I find to be very fascinating. And as as you guys are turning there, I think there's a concept that if we could just kind of keep it on our dashboard as we cruise through this text today, it's gonna help us in this passage. The concept, is bending without breaking. Bend but don't break. You've heard it, I'm sure you've heard it. The the idea behind it is that we can give up ground in some small areas without really losing. That we could maybe give some yardage up over here and not blow it big time. That's the idea behind bend but not break. You see it in education used. I've seen it in um, the business world used, parenting, investing. Most importantly, we see it in football, right? So if you're a guy, and you watch football or a gal, you watch football, you've probably heard of the bend but don't break defense, okay? Listen, if you hate football and you don't know anything about football right now, your IQ is about to pop up a few levels, okay? <laughs> if you love football and you disagree with what I say, keep it to yourself, don't email me, I don't care. But the bend but don't break football defensive package, what it does is it aims at giving up small yards here and there all the way down the field hoping that it can stop from the big plays from happening, right? Little dink and dunk plays here, but when it gets close to the goal line, then it becomes a very, very effective defense. It's just giving a little here. Given a little there until it comes down to the wire. Now the wisdom behind it, it sounds like a dumb defense. The wisdom behind a defense like this is it forces your opponent to create these long sustained drives, but they're, they're composed of these little tiny plays, three yards here, two yards there, four yards there. And the more an opponent does that, their opportunity for making mistakes goes up, right? they are going to drop the ball. They're going to throw an interception. It's going to be a fumble. It just makes it easier for mistakes to get picked up. Another piece of wisdom in it is because it gets very, very effective close to the goal line. It kind of pushes the opponent to more or less kick field goals, and it's really hard to win a game kicking field goals, right? Now, nobody likes watching this defense because it looks like your team can't play defense. They just get marched on all the way down the field. It's kind of boring. It looks passive. It bends everywhere. It gives up games. But if it's executed perfectly, it could win championships, right? Next week, Super Bowl, watch the Patriots, they're known for this defense, this bend but not breaking in how they play. I think most Christians run this defensive package as well, and I think they feel like it works really well for them. The bend but don't break. If I give up ground in this arena, I can still prevent there from being a huge loss over here. Just give up a little yardage here, doesn't feel like it's gonna be that big of a deal. I think I can still win. I think this posture of bending and not breaking in the Christian life, it treats this thing that we call holiness as situational. Holiness meaning that we are a distinct people living in a culture that is our home, but not really our home. We're distinct. We're set apart. We are a holy people under a holy God. But sometimes we could take that holiness and we can treat it situationally. Where we we're bent. We could bend our purity, we could use pornography so that we don't cheat on our spouse. I've heard that a bunch. Moderation can bend, or we can escape into things like alcohol or food so that smoking grass is not a temptation to us, I've heard that before. We could bend our stewardship where we can do whatever we want with our time and our treasure as long as we give a little bit to the church. It's just being conveniently obedient. Obedient, convenient areas being very disobedient and also convenient areas. I think the Christian that bends but does not break is the one that is convinced that they could live in this world and of this world, right? Compromising without it really mattering all that much. We actually looked at a passage last week, John 17. Don't, don't turn there. Stay in Esther if you're there. We'll put this on the screen. But this is Jesus praying for you. It's as if your name is actually in here. He's praying for his church. You are his church. If you are in fact a son or a daughter of the king, this is a prayer that Jesus prayed for you. Okay. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Today in the passage that we're going to get to look at, we see Mordecai, a guy that we introduced last week. He's going to try really hard this bend, but don't break defense. This is what he's running today. He bends. We've been watching him bend as he has committed Esther to secrecy, his cousin, saying, don't tell anyone you're a Jewess. You're a Persian. As far as anyone knows, you don't belong to the people of God. You're a Persian growing as a Persian. He's bending by being an imperial employee. Who knows the things he's had to do that the empire has demanded? He's bending by not going back to Jerusalem, although he's had two opportunities to do so. To go back and be with this people and rebuild that city. It's bending left and right. But in this passage today, a new villain comes in Haman. He comes, and this guy just decides he's not going to break. Today, he's not bending, he decides. Right? Let me explain. Last week, we barely caught at the very end of our passage, Mordecai stopping an assassination attempt against the king. He saved the king's life. Today, that would get you in the news. Today, you'd be a pretty big deal. Today, you'd have a couple libraries named after. You'd get hamburgers at the White House. Everyone would be talking about it. Back then, this is not what happened, however. In fact, let's look. Go up one verse from Esther 3. We're going to be in Esther 2.23, right? 2.23. It says, When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men, these are the assassins to be, we're both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And that's where it stops. Mordecai doesn't get any more than that. He doesn't get anything out of it. He gets his name written in a footnote. At the bottom of some chronicles, big whoop. I mean, super exciting. That thing's just gonna get rolled up and shoved in some file that nobody cares about, put in some filing cabinet that no one even knew existed in some room that no one knows how to get there. It's just gonna be erased basically from history. This is odd too. Historically, the Persians are known for being very elaborate and being very quick when it comes to paying people back for their loyalty. Because kings like to find out about these things. If you found out that a king was in jeopardy and you brought that information to the king, they're going to make you feel like a king or a queen. They're going to treat you really well. It gets the message across to the empire. It is in your best interest to make sure that we are all informed at all times. Typically, this would have gotten Mordecai the corner office. This would have gotten him an elevated position in the government. But it doesn't today. It doesn't today because that's the way the Lord designed it to go. This is how the Lord deemed in his brilliant wisdom that this story would unpack. Listen, we've been talking about this as the doctrinal term providence. We've been working really hard over the last three or four works weeks to kind of unpack what it means for God to be a providential God, which all it means is that God arranges and directs and maintains creation whether it's how molecules smash into people or into each other over here and how people behave over here. or are just the, the occurrences of mankind. He directs and he arranges them according to his own brilliant wisdom for his own plan and his own purpose. It's providence, All right? And what we've been learning is that this providence of God is not meant to be interpreted right in the moment. Not right when it's happening. It's too easy to miss it. Most of our understanding of what God is doing providentially will come through the long-range rearview mirror looking behind us. I mean, certainly some of you, you have seen some things today that explain what God was doing five years ago, or 10 years ago, or goodness, two weeks ago. You can see how God was working in you and through you and around you, and you didn't understand it at the time, but it happened, right? I mean, this chronicle, that Mordecai's name is scribbled at the bottom of, in file 4,371B, it's going to be pulled later on in this very same story by somebody at the right time at the right place and brought to somebody else at the right time at the right place that they would read it at the right time with the right spirit, and it would be a a building block in this story where God's people are preserved, and because God's people are preserved, Jesus' bloodline is preserved, and because that happens, he comes. He comes. He is with us. And because he is with us, he builds this beautiful church by being here, living, dying, living again. And because this church is here, you are here enjoying Jesus, part of his family. And it all comes back to a moment like this. But whenever he was feeling this happen right there, with no rearview mirror to put it into perspective, felt like he's getting ripped off, I'm sure. I'm sure Mordecai was thinking, wait, this is not fair. This is not fair, because let's read the, ne- the very next verse. Verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how that is one verse? One verse off of what Mordecai had done. Isn't that interesting? It's because we're meant to capture that. This is a not fair moment. This guy didn't do anything. Mordecai is the one that saved the king's life. Don't you think he was thinking this isn't fair? I can't even catch a break. That's where I would be. I'd be a little grumpy. I'd be grumpy at this point. And then I'd get real judgmental too. You know how it is? That guy, that guy got out he's a moron. Doesn't even know how to do his job. I could do his job in my sleep. I should have that job. This sort of thing happens to us all the time and we don't even see it. One day you will whether it's here on earth or whether it's in this beautiful place that Christ is creating space for us to spend eternity with him in the the last days of all last days, one time you will get to see all the moments where God is working in and through and around you. You will get to see it, and it will blow you away. All the things that we missed that God was doing in the moment. I mean, the thing about a rearview mirror is that you can only see what's behind you can't really see what's in your blind spot. I think some of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room, are trying to process the goodness of God in the midst of what it feels like to be in a car wreck, in the midst of what it feels like when God is absolutely nowhere to be seen, right? We're trying to make sense of it now. I was thinking and reflecting over this week, I feel like I've heard more bad news this week than in most weeks, I haven't had anything bad happen in my own family, but I keep getting texts or calls or emails or I'll bump into someone and it explains that something horrible has happened this week to somebody else. I feel like I've heard that a lot this week. Maybe it's not just truth, but that's what it feels like, right? Just know this, whether it is here or there, God will make his goodness clear to you. There will be a moment where you will see, you will know clearly what God was doing with you in the midst of that trial or in the midst of that tribulation, you will see it, and this is what your heart will say. It will say, amen and yes, and you will be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. It's hard to say now. It's hard to even think about now. But you'll be satisfied. You'll be content. God will be glorified. Let's go on. Let's look at verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew." And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit." To tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you. To the people also to do with them as it seems good to you then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month in an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Okay, what most people catch in this moment in the beginning of this passage is Mordecai standing defiantly before Haman, right? We see in our mind Mordecai standing like some pillar of granite, not breaking a sweat. Like he's not troubled at all. You could, you could almost hear all the other people around him saying, Hey, hey, back it down. Hey, get down, man. Everyone else is bowing. <laughs> I don't think you knew this. You're supposed to bow. And like he just, he's not breaking a sweat. Like he doesn't care. Why did he do this, though? He would have bowed to the king, he'd been known to do it before. After all, this bowing isn't worshiping. It's just bowing. It'd be as if the Queen of England walked in here, and you wouldn't know what to do, you know. It'd take, like, someone from Britain to kind of elbow and say, hey, you're supposed to bow. You'd be, oh, oh, okay, and you would do it because that's just what you do. You wouldn't stand there and say, nah, I'm good, I'm not doing it. You wouldn't do that. It's, it's not worship in this point. It's just showing respect for the office. Also, it's not like he's not bowing in other areas. He's bending in plenty of other areas. He is fully a Persian resident. He's a Persian resident. Was it because he was jealous? I mean, he didn't get the corner office, and this guy did. Is it because he's just having a high testosterone moment? Maybe he had a great devotional that morning, was feeling super convicted, or I mean, who knows? I mean, why, why here? Why in this moment is he doing this? I think the Bible lines it out for us. You remember a couple weeks ago, I said, anytime in Hebrew literature, when you see a new person introduced into a story, it'll give you some descriptors afterward. The first descriptor is typically the one the author wants you to associate with that person, right? Haman was an Agagite. Haman was an Agagite. Problem with that is Mordecai is a Jew, right? There's a ferocious tension between these two people groups. Agagites came from Agag, he's a king of the Amalekites, and they were the ancient tribe of the Jews. In fact, they were like the worst of enemies that God had cursed into extinction. They came out If you were to go back in history, Exodus, probably around chapter 15, 16, and 17, you will see the nation of Israel come across the sea, and the very, very first enemy to come and try to stop them in their tracks were the Amalekites, just taking advantage of the fact that it's a young nation. They don't have their wits around them yet, probably don't have a formalized army yet, probably would be very easy to defeat. So they come and they do this, and then they lose. And God says this, He says, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in all the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God says he's going to blot their name out to where they don't exist anymore. Later on in 1 Samuel, you'll see that King Saul was charged to go and fight the very same people. And God said again, blot them out. Take them out. We're going to erase them. We're going to disappear them from all the people groups of the land. But Saul doesn't do it. King Saul keeps all the things that seem valuable. He keeps all the valuable people, the valuable things, and he even keeps the king. King Agag survives. And because he survives, the bloodline survives, and because Saul left that bloodline intact, now you have this stare down between two guys in Susa. That's what's creating this. This is why Mordecai says, I'm not bowing, it's because he's a Jew, and this other guy is an Amalekite. And This is why Haman goes kind of beast mode-ish here, right? He's saying, it's not, it's not enough that I take this guy out. And it's not enough that I take his whole family out and all of his bowling friends and his neighbors. It's not enough that I do that. I'm going to disappear every single Jewish person in 127 provinces. All of them, gone. That's where he set his sights. Why so extreme? I mean, you'd think that over time, just the hate would kind of evaporate, Right? I think this speaks to a little bit about, towards what what Hillary was talking about up here, and that the enemy of our souls is operating through Haman in this moment, and there's always a Haman, isn't there? Working through Haman in this moment to close out the Jewish nation. You see, the enemy knows scripture, and the enemy knew that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, which is a tribe of Israel. He knew that. This This would effectively cut the tree down before fruit would ever grow. It's an attempt of the enemy. Herod would do the same thing later on when he'd say, we're going to kill every boy under the age of two. It all goes back to Genesis 3. Week one in this series, we talked about how that being a great anchor for any time you read or process anything that's happening in the Bible or your world is Genesis 3. Where God is saying to the enemy, I will put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Haman is bruising heels right now. This is the enemy's attempt to snuff out the people of God and the plan of God. And so what does he do? He casts lots. He's going to cast lots to decide the fate of a people. And even this is part of God's providence. Even this, even the And by the way, archaeologists have found these lots. From, from this kingdom and from the kingdom right before it, the Babylonians, they say they look freakishly like dice. <laughs> they said if you were to grab a pair of dice, it looks just like what these people were using. So they're basically just throwing dice is what they're doing to discern what the date is that this is going to be carried out. Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even the date of the destruction is determined by God. Because Haman had a scheme And the Lord would even bend that for his own glory, right? This is important for me, this point, because if you're like me and you watch and read the news, does it feel like lots are being cast that are gonna affect you? Sometimes, man, when I read the news, I feel like that's gonna affect me, that law being passed or this thing that's happening. or It almost feels like people are making decisions that are gonna affect you and everyone that you love. And it feels like you're helplessly out of control. This helps me to know that every decision is from the Lord, and he will take even the hearts of kings, he says, in, he says earlier in uh, Psalms 2, and he will move the hearts of kings even. Right? So now again we have Haman coming along and manipulating a weak, vacillating king by saying something like, it's not to the king's prophet that you suffer through a people like this, that you tolerate them. And here's the thing, the king doesn't even care, does he? He doesn't ask any questions. He's only looking after his best interests. Even his logic is super flimsy right here. He didn't even ask what the people group was. He didn't even ask, who are these people you're talking about? I mean, that's the first thing I would want. I would have two questions if I was the king and Haman was talking to me. Hey, who are we even talking about? We're talking about genocide. (laughs) It'd be helpful to know what people group we're talking about if we're talking about wiping out people across 127 provinces. The second question I have is, why are you willing to pay for it? Why are you willing to pay for it? You hate them that bad? You see, the reason Haman was doing that is because the king was gonna lose tax revenue. He loses that much of the population, his taxes drop like a rock. Haman is saying, I'll cover it. I'll pay for it out of my own bank account. At that point, as a king, I would say, wait a minute, let's tap the brakes and just ask ourselves some really big questions. Why are you willing to put so much on the table for this? And who are we even talking about? Rewind. But he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, do what seems good to you. Do what seems good to you. I mean, this is just a good place to just pause and say, where is God? Anyone see him in this passage? It looks like this nation is circling the drain. I don't see God anywhere here. And yet he's everywhere. And I mean, we have a city that is tossed into confusion. The whole city is in confusion. And what does that tell you, by the way? If the whole city, it tells you that not everybody had the same heart against the Jews that Haman did. I mean, this was ripping companies in half, ripping neighborhoods in half, probably ripping some marriages in half, that the Jewish people would die. And I wonder how many other conquered people groups were in Persia that said, hey, if this can quickly happen to the Jews, what about my people? All they got to do is cast some dice. I mean, are you serious right now? That's all it takes? The whole city is in confusion. Man. Did you notice also, just to go back and look at this a little bit, the date, the date that this is to be carried out, the 13th day of the first month is the day before Passover. That is the day before Passover, this day that commemorates the deliverance of God's people. It commemorates... When God has done impossible things to save his own people. This special relationship that God has with his people, it celebrates that. And it's happening there. This date was decided by some lots that were cast, but that wasn't a coincidence. What it should have done is it should have engendered this thought process in the people of God that said, Wait a minute, did you say the day before Passover? Okay, that's just freaky. Because listen... (laughs) I remember a time way back in the day when our people were in an impossible situation. That situation was just impossible. And God split a sea in half so that we could walk through it and then we watched our taskmaster washed away. Impossible. That stuff is impossible. It's just uncanny that it's going to happen on the same day. And so the edict is sent out to the four corners the far reaches of the empire and then these two wicked leaders go and grab a drink to celebrate what's going on okay if that is our text today we are invited to ask whether mordecai's issue in standing up whether it's primary or secondary it seems kind of secondary to me what i mean is is You know, earlier you'll you'll read about Daniel and his four friends, or his three friends, and they would refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. They wouldn't bow before the king and worship him. Now, that's a primary issue. That's a good time to stand. I'm not going to worship you. I worship only God, right? This seems secondary. You could almost argue that Mordecai is majoring on the minors here. Maybe his convictions are a little bit misplaced. How would you know? The other Jews they're all bowing. They didn't find that to be a fine time to stand up. They didn't come to the same conclusion he did. Were they wrong? He's bending in other areas. For all anyone knows, Esther is Persian because he swore her to silence. He's been bending, 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 and now he's trying not to break. Now he's trying not to break. find that interesting. You know, we have that question before us. How do we be how can someone be a Jew and a Persian at the same time? How can we be a Christian and an American at the same time? How can you live in this place, but not in this place all at the same time, right? How can we be aliens and strangers in a world where our citizenship is here, but it's not really here? How do we do that? We have the same basic questions they do. I mean, if we were to even get more specific, how do I, as an American Christian, uphold principles within a structure of government that approves of practices that violate the law of God. How do I do that? When do I stand? When do I bend? What does breaking look like? See, and today in America, I don't think we're at a place where it's demanded that we choose the empire over God, not yet anyway. I don't think we're there. I think we all have Mordecai shaped decisions in front of us though. I think we're going in that direction Some of you already have them in your workplace, I've already talked to you, and some of the things that kind of keep you up at night and strike you about what you have to do during the day is that you do feel like the empire is demanding that you be um, compliant, even over your convictions, and how hard that's been for you. Listen, we have hope. Low standards, low standards of morality, they give the church a beautiful opportunity to lift and elevate what the story of God looks like amidst a landscape of just toppled idols. We have an opportunity. There's great hope for us. Absolutely, it's getting darker, but it's not frustrating the plan of God. He's not intimidated, not even a little bit. He says this in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So as we live and breathe and work and play in what we'll call Susa, our world today, our empire, we as the people of God have an opportunity to not bend or break. We don't have to give up any yards. We don't have to give up any yards. It's not convenient. When we do give up yards, it does wreck our distinction. It wrecks it. it makes our, what we'll call a witness, our example. It makes it inconsistent. It makes us very hard to take seriously. That's what I'm noticing with the church today. It's hard to take us seriously. For instance, we have no strength to pronounce anything against homosexuality when we tolerate heterosexual sin. We lose our strength to do that. I mean, can you see how dumb that looks? How silly it looks. Seriously, I don't blame a world very much for looking at the church and saying that doesn't make sense. It's kind of inconsistent. They tolerate heterosexual sin, and then they just go bananas and they stand up like Mordecai when it comes to homosexuality, right? Don't understand that. I think we have crippled strength when we do that. I think we also have no strength to have a commentary on the recreational use of marijuana if we are free to get drunk on wine or work or food or media. I mean, again, it looks silly. It looks silly when an overindulgent church Lectures is an overindulgent culture, right? Bending and not breaking. Now, my solution isn't to be silent. It's to stop bending, right? That's, that's the solution. That if we're to be salt into this culture that brings value to it, which is what salt does, or it, it uh, preserves it, which is what salt does, that when we lose our taste, we lose that distinctive ability to preserve and bring value, then we're, we're useless as the Bible says. That would be my concern. And of course it's a temptation. It's a temptation that even Jesus had to struggle and work through. He's tempted in every way that you were tempted. Now he didn't sin, but he is tempted in every way that you're tempted. In fact, if you go to Matthew four and you see him coming out of this time of temptation in the wilderness, vulnerable, hungry, weak, that's when the enemy came. And now if you were to take all of those back and forths that the enemy had with Jesus and kind of put them in a blender and pour it out, it all basically sounds like this. If you bend a little bit here, you won't break. If you just give in a little bit here, you won't lose. You just gotta move a minute, just move an inch and everything will be fine. That's what's happening. So he understands the struggle is real. It's a real struggle. Living in an empire where we lose standing while others are promoted, that's a real thing where the empire rewards those who live by its code and they suppress those who don't, that's real. It's just simple economics to want to bend. Simple economics, right? It's the person that says, I've done everything I'm supposed to do financially. I give to the church, I'm a great steward over everything, I'm wise with my money, and and they just go on down the line. All the things that they do that are very biblical and gospel-centered, and then their neighbor lives like a king and they don't do any of that. It's tempting to bend, it's tempting. When the, when the LGBTQA wagon rolls down the road and demands that I bow my knee and comply, it's tempting because I don't want to be called a bigot. I don't want to get pounded. I don't want the empire's weight to come down on me. This is why people bend. It's the person that says, if I care for the unporn, the person in the womb, it'll be heard as I don't care for the mom. That's what will be heard. So there's no winning. But if I just keep my mouth shut, then I gain. I could bend but not break. It's not like I'm getting an abortion, right? I'll just be silent when others do, right? It's not like I am caught in homosexuality. I'll just be silent won't judge others that are struggling with that. See how this is a struggle for us? The average Christian runs the bend but don't break defense, giving up small concessions while hoping against larger plays. I think what we like to do is we like to think, we like to really believe deep inside that when it really comes down to it, when it counts, we'll be standing strong. Like Mordecai, standing strong. But Ben, I I just, by then I think the world doesn't care. By then I'm not so sure that we're taking that seriously. So what do we do as a church? What does a compromising Christian do or a church full of compromising Christians do? This is gonna sound very predictable, but I think we return to the story of God, the good news, the gospel, not just in how it saves us, but how it sustains us through even these temptations. I think if we look for a backbone, if we look for a backbone and a distinctiveness, it's in the gospel. Not because it's a story that tells us what we ought to do, but because it's a story that tells us what has already been done and what we are free to enjoy, right? Because it's that kind of a story. I want you to consider for a moment that God has four more reason than Haman himself to destroy us, to destroy you and me, much more reason. We don't keep laws, we don't bow down, we don't give proper honor to God. I mean, if there was an edict that were to roll out for our destruction, it would be just, it would be just. But instead of complying, what God does is he hands over his son. This is what it sounds like. Sounds different. Notice how this sounds versus how the king sounds. God would say, Satan, do with my son Jesus whatever feels good to you. Do what seems good to you. What seems right, let him be punished for sin, but let his people go. Let his people go, destroy him, because sin has to be paid for. Take whatever he has, whatever meager possessions, and split it up and give it to wicked men so they can have it. Torture him. Mock him, treat him as a criminal on a hill of criminals outside the city, but as for my people, you will not touch them. Right? It sounds different than a king that says, do what seems good to you. Take everything that they own and split it up for yourself. Right? This edict that God has signed and sealed by his own blood, it cannot be changed and it cannot be reversed. Right? And just as Mordecai's actions would jeopardize a nation of God's people. Jesus's actions would rescue a nation of God's people. You're actually meant to see that in the story of Esther, by the way. How one man's decision affects the many. One man's decisions affects the many. When I look at the gospel and how God the Father handles his son being mindful of us, it it provokes two deep thoughts in me. One is that God loves me as much as he does And then the second, that I could bend so often. In light of that, I could trust so little, that I could love him so little. I'm shocked by that in the gospel, that he loves me that much and that I bend so much. Because the good news says I'm free to find God to be the greatest good in this world full of goods. That he is the greatest treasure. That I'm free from bending my knee to a demanding empire. I'm free to believe and trust and enjoy this God of glory as my deepest treasure. I'm free to do that. And this has implications for how we do mission, how we extend the gospel to a city that needs it so badly. What do we need? What is it that we need to stand distinctively as a people that don't bend or break? We need boldness from the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna read a passage out of Acts 4. You can stay where you're at if you want because we're just gonna be in and out of this. Acts 4, 27, we see a church, a brand new church, and it says, for truly in this city, there were gathered against, or there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so they're speaking to a providential God. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Even with all of that, even with as dark as things are getting, even with what these high, powerful people have done, that we would have boldness. Listen, this century alone, in the last 18 years, we are averaging 300,000 martyr deaths in the world. Think about that for a moment. That's mind-blowing to me. Every year, we average 300,000 Christian deaths, right? We're seeing right now, just right now in China alone, we're seeing pastors getting rounded up, really good churches that are planting really good churches. And listen, some of those pastors probably aren't coming back. doesn't matter what, what happens geopolitically. They might not be coming back. It's happening. But that's not really something we feel here. That's not something that we struggle through, right? We have a different flank that leans on the Church of America where many are trying very hard, hard to shift what Christianity looks like and to shift the definition of what the gospel is. Because if you can't destroy it, just pollute it, right? So when you see Lady Gaga get up in the middle of a concert, in the middle of a song, say, I'm a Christian, that's what you're seeing. That just happened, by the way. She says, listen, I'm a Christian, not like these Christians, not like those Christians. I'm a Christian, right? She's going to redefine right there what it looks like to be a Christian for millions and millions of people. Therefore, changing what the gospel message really says. That's something that we have to struggle with here. Our empire is doing something different. It's trying to change the definition of who Jesus is and changing the gospel. So what do we need? We need boldness. And we need clarity. Those two things being prayed for in this young church of Acts. We must trust God's providence and the power of the Holy Spirit to place us in positions where we could stand in culture, for culture, yet distinct from it. We need boldness. Boldness. But a boldness is powered by the Holy Spirit, informed, having the love of the Holy Spirit, having the clarity of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous power of it. I think this moment in this story shows us that it's not in the empire's best interest to tolerate the people of God. It's not. Karen Jobes, who is a scholar on this book, she says it better than I do. She says, Satan, the dragon, drives the beast of world empires to demand respect and destroy those who refuse it. That's what we're seeing in this passage. I think that's what we feel today as a church. Whether you live here, or whether you live in Asia, you're gonna feel it a little differently. It's a demanding empire. The good news for us is we're people with nothing to lose. We're people with absolutely nothing to lose. The truth is for us, this is not our home. We're only passing through. We're sojourners with a different kingdom citizenship, headed to a different place, to be with a different king, who does what seems best to him, not for his best interest, but for our best interest. It's a brilliant king, a kingdom where we have this new rearview mirror, where he shows us with all clarity what he's been doing, how he's been weaving this story, this providential story, and where we fit in, so that that thing that happened to you at that time, how God was beautiful in that moment that you weren't able to see at that moment. How that thing that you went through, that you couldn't understand where God was, where he shows you where he was the entire time. That moment where we say, amen, God, you were brilliant, and you were good, and you were kind, and I am satisfied. I'm satisfied. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to shift gears and go from a time of maybe receiving the word of God, to responding to the word of God. You're gonna see it up on stage with the musicians as we sing. You'll see people, little clumps of people going back and taking communion. That also gives you an opportunity to respond to this word by taking communion. We see communion as really a kingdom meal. Celebrates our revolutionary that stood for our citizenship. And he invites us into that shared meal because it reflects his love for us right? It reflects his love for us. So listen, if you're a, a Christian, we invite you to take communion with us as a church. You could take it with a roommate or with your family. If you're not a Christian, I would just invite you to receive Jesus instead. I'd, I'd invite you to take him seriously today, this very day, right? And listen, if you're, there, there is room for us to repent in a sermon like this. If we're saved, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, where are you standing firm. And then where are you standing soft? Where are you bending? Where is it that you bend? What is it that you treasure more than Jesus right in the middle of that moment? What is it that you are getting that Jesus is unable to deliver? When you are bending, when you are compromising with the empire, when you are complying, how is it that God is holding you down in that moment that you have to turn to a different good? How is it that he is not the ultimate good? How is something treasured more? These are the questions you can ask. These are the questions that lead us to repentance. And listen, if you're in here and you are far from Christ, there is also room to repent. Because you live in a world where your compliance is demanded. And you know that. You've been happy to give it. It's kept you safe. It's kept you indistinct. You've not gotten pounded. You've not felt the full weight of an empire. A nail doesn't get pounded when it's not sticking up, right? Right? But the gospel's perfect for you, if that's you. The gospel's perfect for you. It's perfect for the compliant. It's perfect for the person who just wants to keep their head down. It's perfect because it's inviting you into something very different, very beautiful, very distinct, very set apart for the God that we serve is a set apart God. If that is you, man, I would just petition you to give your life to God today to give your life to him unapologetically, to give your life to him aggressively, to give your life to him with deep repentance. Let me pray for you, in fact. Let me just pray for all of you. My Father, I thank you that I know that there will be people that will hear a sermon like this and wonder where there's room to even change. My Father, I know where I can bend. And I know what it is in me that does not want the full weight of the empire coming down on me. I just want to comply just because I just want things to be easy. I think we all do, to a certain degree. I think that's why your church is asking for boldness. And that's why I'm asking for boldness for us as a church. That we would be bold. That we wouldn't just be a church that bends but tries not to break, but we would be a church, a group of people, collected by your goodness. That we would be a people that would be able to stand distinct, and be bold, that we would choose you as our deepest treasure, our most good good. So Lord, help us repent, help us see where it is that we move sideways on this, help help us see where it is that we like to comply and compromise, where we like to live in and of the world. Father, we just invite your spirit to move in our hearts, to change us from the inside out, to move in us, to move around us, to move through us. We trust what you're doing in our lives right now. I know there are some serious car wrecks in this room and they don't know what you're doing. They don't know where you are. They don't know what you're up to. They don't see you in the details. I trust that they will someday. I trust that. But Lord, today, that even if you don't tell them what you're doing, that you would give them the confidence that you love and care for them and that you are present, that you're not an absent God, but you're a present God. But you're not nowhere, you are everywhere. So we love you, Lord, and we thank you. You're so sweet and so kind and so generous to us. And it's in your name we pray, amen.